Well, please open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We have just begun to study this profound letter by the Apostle Paul. And we saw last time that Paul begins the letter by highlighting some of the wonders of the gospel. The theme of Romans is that the gospel is the power of God to save. This is what Paul calls the gospel of God in verse 1. The gospel of God is what the Romans have believed, and it is what Paul preaches. In fact, he has been given God's authority to preach it as God has called him to be an apostle and set him apart for that very purpose. Now remember, Paul has never met the Roman Christians, even though he's very familiar with many of them and probably has met some of them in other places, but he has never been to Rome. He did not plant or found the church in Rome, and so he does not know all of the believers there, and he's never met most of them. And so having introduced himself in verses 1 through 6, he now greets them and seeks to establish bonds with them. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine." I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time today in these verses. Lord, we come this morning, um, each of us with burdens, each of us weighed down by the cares of life. And we come this morning not, not so much thinking that we will find a quick and easy fix to life. Lord, that by coming, though, to your word and hearing you speak, and hearing the riches of your, your revelation unpacked. Lord, that our hearts will be changed, that our perspectives will be made right. And Lord, that's what we ask that you would do this morning, is that you would work on our hearts, that you would draw us into communion with yourself, and that you would, you would continue this work of holiness in our lives. We ask this in your son's great name. Amen. Well, these verses, like Paul's other greetings in the New Testament, give us a good picture, don't they, of 
his pastoral love for Jesus' people, his prayers of thanks, his petitions for them. And in this greeting, we see Paul's eagerness to expand his ministry to the church of Rome for the sake of the church in Rome and even beyond the church in Rome, all for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's ambitions as he bears them before the Romans here are born out of his commission from the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel to the Gentile world. But there's a lot more going on in these verses than you might think at first. On the surface of things, Paul is expressing his appreciation for them and his desire to visit them, and he is establishing these bonds with them through the gospel. But he is also exercising a measure of diplomacy because he is seeking to establish his ministry in this church and through this church that he didn't start. And he's seeking to do this by partnering with them in ministry to, to, uh, to draw them into his ministry. And it's not so much that Paul writes with this burden to establish his apostolic authority. They would have heard of the Apostle Paul, even if he didn't plant the church, and they would have known who Paul was. They would have been familiar even with his ministry, but and Paul has already established here in uh, the opening of the letter that he has been called to be an apostle, verse 1. And in verse 5, that he has received grace and apostleship through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul's authority is established, but watch, this is important. Paul does not want to expand his mission by exercising his authority but by appealing to their common faith and their shared mission, their shared love of Christ and the gospel. And so in this way, Paul is, he is winning the Romans' confidence. He's winning their partnership. He's, he's appealing to them to cooperate and to, to join him because they have the same Lord, the same gospel, and the same mission. Yet there's still more. Because chapters 1, beginning in verse 16, which we'll get to next week, through chapter 15, verse 13, which is almost the very end of the letter, that portion, the bulk of the letter, are really Paul's goal. It is this exposition of the gospel. The, the bulk of Romans is not about his travel plans, his relationship with the Romans or the other churches. It's not even really about his mission to Spain. These serve as the opportunity on which Paul capitalizes to declare the gospel, which is the bulk of the letter. Now, I keep mentioning this this mission to Spain, let's look at the end of the letter where he summarizes all of these things. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 15. This will make some things a little bit more clear. And you will see that what Paul says at the end of the letter echoes what he is saying at the beginning. 
Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's pause for a second. When Paul says, I have, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, he is saying very boldly because they don't know him. Because he doesn't have an established ministry there in that church. The, the very boldly has to do with the fact that Paul is in this unpacking of the gospel, in this expounding of the gospel's riches, Paul is, uh, he is asserting himself as an apostle into their church and into their lives. And so he's saying, I've been very bold in this reminder because of the grace given me to be this minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And he's saying, you are included as the Gentiles. Now, there are Jewish believers in the church, and Paul is going to spend a lot of time talking about that in the letter. But he sees the church in Rome as in his jurisdiction, if you will, because he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, this priestly service of the gospel of God, he is mediating the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. So they don't know him, but he's saying this grace given him by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus gives him legitimate credit in the church. Let's continue, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So this is Paul's philosophy of apostolic ministry. Okay? This is his, uh, his mode of operation, his philosophy of apostleship, if you will. And that is to pioneer into new places where the gospel has not been preached. And he's saying, I have fulfilled that where I have already been, this Reference to Jerusalem to Illyricum is talking about a geographical area in which we see in the book of Acts that Paul has uh, he's gone to all these different places. He's preached the gospel in that whole region that's been given to him. And now for him to go on further, to continue, he ha- needs to get to Rome. He needs to get west of Rome. Verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you meaning all of the ministry responsibilities he's had. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So Paul's calling, his ministry schedule, 
his travel plans, his mission ambitions. These are bookends at the beginning and the end of the letter of Romans that bracket this expounding of the gospel because Paul knows that the Romans need the gospel to be reinforced in their lives. And so this letter lays the groundwork for the ministry that he wants to have with them in person. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. He has greeted them. And let's look now at Paul's desires and his designs to, to visit Rome. Okay, that Paul, for the gospel's sake, desires these things. These are his gospel ambitions. First, for the gospel's sake, Paul desires to visit them. To visit them. And you may have never met them, but Paul is thankful for the Romans because of their testimony in all the world. So as, as Christians moved throughout the Roman Empire, news was carried from city to city and from church to church. They would, uh, the church in Rome would have brought news from there to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae and then Thessalonica and Corinth. And vice versa, these churches would have all been communicating as people traveled throughout the empire. And Paul is saying that the church in Rome has been confirmed by many reports among the churches and to himself to be established in the gospel and to be faithful and fruitful in their ministry. Their faith is well known. And this moves Paul to thank God for them but also to intercede for them regularly. That's what he means here by saying, I, without ceasing, I make petitions for you. I, and all of my prayers, he means that this is a regular, ongoing part of Paul's life of prayer, is praying for the believers in Rome. Especially, he says, he is praying that by God's will, he can succeed in visiting them. It is crucial to Paul that they understand how important this is to him. This is why he invokes God as his witness. This is a way of saying, no one else can know my motives. No one else can really know my heart but God. But if God were to testify on my behalf, he would be saying to you, yes, Paul longs to come and see you. And he has made efforts. He has desired to come and visit you. This is a type of oath, really, that Paul takes. God is my witness. And when he says he serves God with his spirit, he means thoroughly in the deepest part of his being. Paul is thoroughly sold out for preaching the gospel of God's Son. And what Paul is really doing here by and you know, saying, God is my witness. I wanted to come and see you. I am thankful for you. And I, I pray on your behalf. And I pray especially that the Lord will make it successful, make a successful trip for me, will pave the way for me to come to you. What Paul is really doing in all this is he is making clear that he has a stance toward the Roman Christians of sacrifice that he sees as part of his apostleship, a calling to sacrifice himself for their behalf, to give of himself for them. That is how Paul saw his mission to the various churches. 
He saw himself as, as uh, being used up, consumed. He saw his own life as expendable for the gospel and for the, the good of those churches. Remember in, in the book of Philippians chapter 1, Paul is talking about how he would rather depart and be with Christ. That would be far better. He's in prison. He's writing the Philippians. And he says, but I know that it's better for your sake if I remain, and therefore I know I'm going to remain because my life is completely consumed with the gospel and with the strengthening of God's people, his churches. And when Paul says this to the Romans, I want to come and see you, and God is my witness that I desire to do this, and I'm praying for you, Paul is saying, I include you into what I see as my responsibility, my stewardship before God, and that my life is being spent at your expense, both in my prayers in which I'm being poured out and in my, my plans and in my priorities to come and to see you. Even though he's never met them, Paul already sees them as objects of his sacrificial care. He sees their faith as coming under his responsibility. Also, Paul knows that the best way to serve the believers in Rome is in person. That the best way for them to embrace his instructions, to walk the path of the Christian life, is to be able to see Paul, to see the gospel modeled in his life. And we see this in other places in Paul's letters as well. Follow my example as I follow Christ. He says that to the Philippians also. Now, there are some lessons for us, I think, in these verses, especially for, for anyone who is given any kind of role of leadership or ministry or responsibility in the church, that while there is a right and biblical authority, that is not the way about going ministry, going about ministry. That first and foremost, our calling, anyone's calling and leadership in the church is to call people to common faith and vision in the gospel. And that's why we move. That's why we come alongside each other. That's why we at times confront each other. There's also a word for, uh, for those uh, of us when we are called to follow leadership, to see that those who are in leadership in the church are given a responsibility and are held to account for it, and that their desire to see the gospel work in the lives of the people of God's church is for the church's good and for the glory of the gospel. That's why Paul is appealing to them in this way. So for the gospel's sake, Paul desires first to visit them. Now, what does, he, what does he want to accomplish when he gets there? That's what he goes on to talk about. Verse 11, for the gospel's sake, Paul also desires to strengthen them. To strengthen them. How? Well, first he expects to strengthen them with some spiritual gift. That's so what he says here. I, I expect I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, he may mean a spiritual gift like the, the gift of teaching or the gift of tongues or the gift of serving. 
He may mean a spiritual gift, although that's the way we usually use that term to talk about these, uh, these supernatural gifts that the people of God are given as God's people to build up the rest of the body, whether that's teaching or whether that's serving or whether that's uh, prophecy or whether, whatever it might be, whatever those gifts are. And when we get to chapter 12, Paul will talk about many of these specific gifts, gifts of mercy, gifts of serving, gifts of leadership, gifts of encouragement, all of these gifts. It could be that Paul's talking about that. Now, it's the Spirit who determines the gifts, but as an apostle, it may be that Paul is saying that he can actually mediate and come into the church of Rome and say, man, you guys are really strong in these ways, but Lord, Holy Spirit, I want... They need this gift, could be. Usually when Paul is talking about those gifts, though, he doesn't use these two terms together, spiritual gift. So it could very well be, and probably more likely than instead of these, these kinds of gifts, that Paul is simply talking about some insight or ability provided by the Holy Spirit through Paul that will strengthen their faith some work of grace that will match some lack they have there in the church of Rome. As an apostle, Paul would be bringing those to bear in ways that we're not and other leaders would not. And so he says, I want to strengthen you. Second, then he says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So Paul sees this as an exchange, not a one-way street. In other words, and I think this is what Paul is getting at, Paul's faith will be encouraged when they, by faith, receive Paul's ministry to them. Now that isn't to say that Paul is above being discouraged, that Paul, because he's an apostle, never needs to be strengthened himself. We know from other places in the New Testament that Paul faced great discouragement, especially in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians where he lists all these trials, all of these things that they're enduring, what they're going through, how they're suffering. He even says, we despaired even unto death. Our discouragement was so great that we got to a point to where we, we were overwhelmed to the point of just wanting to die and ex, were expecting to die. So Paul knew the depths of discouragement. There were times he needed to be strengthened. And I don't think that Paul is saying that he's above other believers because he's an apostle and somehow they can't strengthen him or encourage his faith. But in this context, where Paul is establishing this apostolic role, this leadership among believers he's never met, the emphasis he's making is that he is encouraged, his faith is enriched and strengthened when those under his care grow in their faith because they are responding to his gospel preaching. And that's the exchange that he's after. And he's saying to the Roman Christians, I expect this to be the relationship that we have. This is going to form the bonds between us. I come to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen you. And if you will respond, 
And in your faith, receive my ministry among you. My faith will be strengthened. It will be enriched. See, Paul is committed to their growth. He's committed to their well-being. And he wants them to know that. His calling is not just to get people into the race. You know what I mean by that? Paul doesn't see his calling as just to get people to become Christians, to accept Christ, to receive the gospel in an initial way. Paul sees his calling as also to see them to the finish line, to walk with them from the beginning of the race to the finish line. And so to impart this spiritual gift will strengthen their faith by forming this this bond with them. Again, there is this mutual benefit between the gospel and the church. The church is, when strengthened, good for the gospel. That's how the gospel is furthered. And when the gospel is is received, the church is strengthened. And so we see this relationship between the gospel and the church. And that's what Paul's after here. For the gospel's sake, Paul desires to strengthen them and then to have his own ministry strengthened, which means the gospel then goes farther. Thirdly, for the gospel's sake, Paul desires to reap among them. He desires to reap among them. Verse 13. Again, Paul explains his desire to come, but that he's been prevented. And we know why he's been prevented from chapter 15, verse 22. It's because of all the demands of his ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum. It's because that those were the priorities. Those were where he was, and that's where the Holy Spirit directed him and took him. And so even though at times that Paul had these desires... To go to Rome, he was prevented by other priorities, gospel priorities. But now he sets his eyes on Rome. And in addition to providing strength and encouragement for their faith, Paul expects to gain something as well. Maybe we should put quotes around gain. Because what he wants to gain is to reap some harvest among them, literally fruit. He wants to reap fruit or gain fruit. So what Paul sees as reaping a harvest is, again, still for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus' church. This is the fruit of the gospel, primarily new conversions. Paul wants to see New people come to faith, to embrace Christ, to submit their life to him, to know the freedom and the joy of belonging to Christ and his people. So this is new conversion, but it is also spiritual growth. Paul wants to see fruit from the gospel continue to be uh, produced in the lives of these Christians in Rome. And we see a similar idea in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The church in Colossae, by the way, is another church that had never met Paul when he writes this letter to them. The church in Colossae was not planted by Paul. It was planted by a man named Epaphras. So Paul is writing here to the Colossians, and he's saying, This you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the invincible gospel, how the gospel continues to spread, and new people, new people groups, new languages, new ethnicity. These are coming to the gospel. The gospel is increasing in the whole world. It is bearing fruit. And as it also does among you. What's he saying? He's saying that at the same time, and he could mean that this continues to bring new people in the city of Colossae into the church, into the gospel, but among you is, or in you, that this same gospel that is that is breaking new ground that is saving new people is also continuing to do a work in your lives. It's producing fruit among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Which is why he goes on then to tell them in chapter 2, walk in Christ, walk in him just as you were rooted and planted in him. Because they need to continue So Paul expects the gospel to work powerfully in transforming the lives of God's people and in converting those outside the faith. Paul wants the Romans, these Christians in Rome, he wants their partnership to be the catalyst for this ministry. Fourthly, for the gospel's sake, Paul desires to preach to them, to preach to them. Verse 14, just in case we're tempted to think that Paul is motivated to expand his ministry for some self-promotion, to sell his new book, to uh, put a plug in for his radio ministry, he clarifies what it means to be set apart for the gospel of God. Why is Paul so compelled to get to Rome? Because he is under obligation. He is under obligation. This word obligation comes from the word debtor, someone who owes a debt. Paul owes a debt to his calling, and it is a debt he must pay. He makes this even clearer in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, where he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. This is not about selling something. This is not about me gaining more kudos because now the church of Rome is a notch on my belt. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's how seriously Paul took it. That's how seriously he understood his calling from the risen Lord. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
You ever wish you were the Apostle Paul? Wait, just uh, Paul had this inside track. He sees things. He, he talks at different places in the New Testament about his visions, about seeing the Lord Christ on the road to Damascus. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus would give anyone the strength that he called, just as he did the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul was under constraint like none of us know. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul preached with a profound sense of inescapable responsibility. It was a stewardship he could take no credit for, and it was a stewardship he could not evade or compromise. The targets of this obligation then, he says, I am under obligation to whom? To Greeks and to barbarians. To the wise and to the foolish. This is Paul's way of saying all Gentiles, no matter how you might categorize them. By Greeks here, he doesn't mean just Gentiles. He means more of the cultural elite, the polished. The barbarians were those who were outside of the civilized culture in the Roman Greek mind. Anyone who didn't speak Latin was considered a barbarian because they spoke languages that just sounded like blah, 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 blah. That's where the term barbarian actually comes from. It's because that's the way they heard their speech. And so he's saying whether they're, they're polished and, and cultural elites or, or whether they're kind of on the fringe of culture and society, I'm obligated to to both categories, to the wise and to the foolish, those who have it all together, those who are educated, and those who are not, to all the Gentile world, I owe a debt. I'm obligated. I have to preach to them. But as you have noticed, Paul also says to preach the gospel to you. So while he is under obligation, while he owes a debt to his calling as an apostle to preach the gospel to everybody in the Gentile world, Paul also makes a point of saying, I I am eager, he says here, to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Now, why to you? Well, he has to mean to the Roman believers Why would Christians need to hear the gospel preached to them? I remember a few years ago receiving an an email uh, following a Sunday morning message. A couple that I had met, they were visiting and had visited the church a few times, sent me an email, rather lengthy email, questioning whether or not I was preaching the gospel and how they, they loved the church, but the problem was I was not preaching the gospel every week. Now, what they meant by that, and they described it here, it was, I wasn't trying to fill in the gaps, they explained, what they were meaning was that I wasn't, I wasn't preaching the elementary truths of the gospel and then inviting people forward to come forward and receive Jesus into their hearts. That I wasn't every service 
saying, how about you? Do you want to become a Christian? And do you want to become a Christian? And we're going to sing. And listen, I grew up in a denomination where we sang hymns at the end of the service that had an invitation. It's called an invitational system in which uh, the sermon was given and then we'd sing hymns and people were invited to come down forward right down here in front of the, in front of the altar. There would be an altar here where communion might be set. And they would come down, and you could come down for a number of reasons. You could come to move your membership from a different church. You could come down, and you could say that you were receiving the Lord Jesus as Savior this morning. Uh, You could come down, and you could say that you were rededicating your life to the Lord. You could come forward and say, I feel called into full-time ministry. There was this invitation. And so we would sing hymns, and we would repeat stanzas and choruses. For some of you who think this service goes long, Okay. We would repeat choruses until the preacher, the pastor, felt like, okay, I've, I have drained this crowd of any kind of response that we might get. <laughs> now, I, don't, I am not reading into the motives of the men that I grew up under preaching. That was the system. That was the denomination. That was the way it was done. And I believe that their motives were sincere. They wanted to see people come to Christ. They wanted to see people converted. They wanted to see public commitment. Okay? And there's something to be said for public commitment like that. But it become this motivation. The people who sent me this email, fast forward many years later, that's what they were talking about. And because we didn't do that as a church, they interpreted that as me not preaching the gospel. And so I wrote an email back, a rather lengthy one, explaining that I preached the gospel every week, that the gospel was in the entire New Testament, and everything that we expound out of the New Testament is expounding the gospel, that we are calling for repentance, that Jesus is as crucified, risen, and ascended is preached every Sunday, that our Worship in song proclaimed these same truths over and over and over again. But they had a very narrow and shallow definition of what it meant to preach the gospel. So the reason Paul then says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you is because the gospel is not just the gate It's not just the initial, I heard the gospel and I came to Christ and now that's the gospel. The gospel is the ongoing sustenance. It is the whole body of truth that has been revealed in the person of Christ and then now is explained through the apostles in the New Testament. That is the gospel. It's bigger than just the initial truths that we're each sinful, we each need forgiveness, and the only way to be forgiven is to come to Christ, humble our hearts, ask for forgiveness, confess our sins, and trust in Him and Him alone to save us. That may be the essence of the gospel and the first truths, but that is not the whole gospel. The gospel is the whole body of truth. And so when Paul says, I want to come and I want to preach the gospel, the book of Romans is an example of that. The whole book of Romans is the gospel of God. 
Because the gospel continues a saving work. It is not just a point that you pass. It continues a saving work. Let me give you another place in Paul's letters where he says this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He is encouraging Timothy to, to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, to be faithful in the ministry that he has. And Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, and Paul's going to be on his way there. And he says in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. What's that? That is the teaching of the gospel. That is the preaching. A close, uh, keep a close watch on yourself, your own life, and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, what is Paul saying? Is he saying that Timothy isn't a Christian? Of course not. Is he saying that the believers in Ephesus aren't really believers? And that the only way they will become believers is if he keeps preaching the, the gospel every week and watches the teaching? No. Paul knows they're Christians, he knows they're the church, and he knows Timothy's a believer. Paul is saying that, that you must continue to teach and preach the gospel because it is still saving you and me. It is still at work in transforming us and preserving us. It preserves us from pursuing ungodly living which, and, and argumentation and division, which is false teaching, which is what Paul has been talking about in 1 Timothy. It preserves us from those things. And it can only preserve us if it is continued to be expounded and taught and explained and proclaimed. And so hearing the gospel is part of preserving us in the faith and us persevering in the faith and continuing. And so when Paul says to the Romans, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, he is saying, you still need the gospel reinforced. You still need it proclaimed among you to preserve you, to keep you in the gospel. Now let me pose a couple of questions. Okay, in light of these verses. Number one, are you prepared to receive the gospel? Are you prepared to receive the gospel? In other words, what I mean by that question is, pretty specifically, is your heart ready for the book of Romans? Because that's what we're about to all get. Okay, beginning in verse 16. Are you prepared to receive the gospel? Whether you are here and 
you don't know Christ or you don't know if you know Christ or not, you're unsure, or whether you've been coming to church since you were a child and you are walking according to to the Lord Jesus and walking in Him and keeping God's commands and, and following Him, either one, are you prepared to receive the gospel? Paul is building a bridge with these verses, understand? He's building a bridge so that in receiving the gospel, they will receive his ministry. And so in receiving his ministry, they will receive the gospel. They were one and the same to Paul. And we do not have the opportunity to meet the apostle Paul in person, okay? But we have all that we need, don't we? We have all that we need in the scriptures. This is why I think these personal portions of the New Testament letters are important parts of the whole. They aren't just kind of introductory and ending, conclusion, these personal things we kind of skip through. That's why I believe in verse-by-verse exposition, because even these verses play a part in the whole. It's almost as though the Apostle Paul is uh, extending his ministry down through the years to us. And even though he is writing the Romans, he is writing to us. So are you prepared to receive the gospel. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord is preparing your hearts to receive over these next weeks and months the message of the gospel because in it is life, eternal life. And my second question then would be, to whom do you owe the gospel? To whom do you owe the gospel? Paul had an obligation, a stewardship, a mission to all Gentiles. God had called Paul and assigned him a field of mission. What is your field of mission? What is your stewardship? Whom has God called you to preach the gospel to? To bring the gospel to bear. Because he has. Every one of us. And we, I don't know that any of us are called to an entire people group. It could be. Some of you here today will be called to an entire people group. I don't know that any of us are called to um, a particular place, country, a region, other than where we already live. But the Lord has given you a field of mission also. He has given you an obligation, a debt. You owe the gospel to someone. Because there is someone or someones that God has brought into your path, into your life. And it may be that you can think of that person immediately or people. You go, I know who it is and I've been avoiding them. God will not allow you to to avoid the field of mission that he's called you to. Your workplace, your cubicle, your office, your, uh, your building site, your classroom, whatever it may be, 
the Lord has given you someone to whom you owe the gospel because you owe your life to him, just like I do and just like the Apostle Paul did, even if Paul's calling was a unique one. To whom do you owe the gospel? I would encourage you to prayerfully consider those questions. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we are grateful for the testimonies of of our brothers and sisters, so many believers down through the years who have walked faithfully. Every one of us is the product of the faithfulness of your people who have gone before us in some way or another. You have used others to bring the gospel to bear in our lives. And you have saved us. You have have borne fruit for your own glory through the power of the gospel in every one of our lives, of those of us who belong to you. And Lord, we pray that we would would live accordingly, that you would give us strength. We We are grateful, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us, that you are always with us, and that we lack nothing that we need to pursue lives of godliness, even, even in a culture that is, that is becoming more and more hostile as, as years go by. Lord, help us to be faithful. And we give you praise and we give you honor this morning and thank you for your faithfulness to us, which upholds us even in the most difficult times. May your grace be extended to your people. Amen.